Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our January 27th, 2011 edition of the show, 4.09 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine, California. Before we get fully underway, I have a couple of quick reminders for you. First of all, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. If America is heading for economic and political collapse and more and more people think it is, is this reason to despair? Or is this an opportunity to replace it with something better, something that works for everybody? Our special guest today sees it as the latter and outlines the case and the roadmap in a new book provocatively titled The Anti-American Manifesto. He is Ted Rawl, and he is a syndicated, syndicated political cartoonist, opinion columnist, graphic novelist, and war correspondent whose work appears in hundreds of publications, including the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times. Ted Rawl, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Oh, it, it's great to have you. I've been enjoying your uh, political cartoons for years. I think I first got introduced to your work through the uh, a book called The the Bush Hunter. Uh, Mac White, who had put this uh, book together, was on the show. They had included in there uh, something you did called uh, Checklist for the Neo-Fascists. And <laughs> I was looking at that last night, and uh, your rendition of Paul Wolfowitz in the infamous uh, comb-licking incident is <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really like your, your, your style. It's, uh, I don't know, what, what influenced that style before we get into the book, that cartoonish style? Well, it's weird. It's, it's more like one of, I guess, uh, Marshall McLuhan, the media is the message, in this case, quite literally, um, Back in the 80s, I used to use a different kind of paper called scratchboard, and it kind of um, requires you to have a herky-jerky style. And uh, so just from sort of letting the, the pen take me where it wanted to go on that kind of paper, it kind of, uh, you know, kind of brought me in that direction. Uh, and then, you know, just having a highly abstract drawing style um, is something that, you know, sort of started out um, as a response to my lack of drawing ability and then as I became a better artist I kind of stuck with it because I really wasn't a big fan of caricature. I thought that making fun of people because of the way they looked seemed somehow low and I'd rather pick on, on, their, on the way they thought. But, uh, you know, I've, I've come, my, my art's changed over the years. I, I think it's become more more detailed and more caricature-based and always try to run away from the crowd. So, you know, back then everyone was doing very heavy caricature, very cross-hatched, and I wanted to be, look anything different, as, as different as possible. And now, I'm um, kind of, you know, people have kind of chased the alternative look, and uh, a lot of editorial cartoonists in particular draw in a more abstract style, so I'm running away from that. So, <laughs> you know, I'm a in that way. 
Well, uh, yeah, your stuff always is pointed and always uh, makes me laugh, sometimes even before I've read the caption. It's just there's a lot of humor just in, in the way that you uh, draw the characters, and so thanks for that. So, uh, yeah, yeah, well, you're welcome. Uh, let me see. Uh, so, yeah, the American Manifesto, as I said, it's a provocative title. Uh, can you explain what you mean by that, anti-what? America has become anti the corporate state, anti the empire. What, what do we mean by the anti-America manifesto? Well, anti-America, anti-American in the way that like people who use the words anti-American would mean. Uh, the people who say they, when they when people accuse someone of being anti-American, that what they really mean is that they're opposed to the existing power structure and the existing uh, economic structure and. Uh, and system of governance that supports it. And in that sense, the book is is radically anti-American because it calls for the change and removal of this existing political and uh, corporate capitalist system to something better and to do so immediately, right away, us, not in the future, not someone else, but us and now. Um, So in that sense, but of course, obviously, um, you know, in terms of being pro, this is, in my opinion, uh, very patriotic and and very in favor of the American people. Uh, And uh, so, and and the American people, if they do this, will live much better than we do today. Okay, great. I I like that. Yes, anti that uh, corrupted, nasty ugly uh, system that we have in uh, pro uh, the American people and giving them a life that would be much better. So uh, the let, let me see if I, I have this right, what you're saying in the book. The system is almost certainly going to collapse. The right wing in, in many ways is poised to jump into the, the breach unless we want to see a more overtly racist and murderous system than we already have or an extreme gangster oligarchical system like Russia's, we're going to have to get ready, be, be ready to fight. Is, is that it? Well, yeah, we, that, that's exactly right. We need to, the system is headed towards collapse anyway. So, uh, you know, standing by and, and doing nothing, it's just not a viable option. Um, the system, you know, there's so many comets headed toward the Earth that you don't even really know which one is going to head first. And, you know, I mean, I'm using that as a metaphor. You know, will it be environmental collapse? Who knows? Could be. Uh, you know, one, we might just be walking down the street and no longer be able to breathe, or we may just run out of food. But it could be, you know, it could be uh, a worldwide economic collapse due to the, the immense record disparity of income and wealth uh, in the West and in the United States in particular. Um, it could be just a simple seizure of capitalism, capital as the failure of the credit markets uh, uh, sort of collides with the failure of, of the consumer-based economy. Um, it could be massive blow from America's military misadventures. Um, who knows? I mean, it, it could, oh, and it, I'm guessing it'll probably be something that really none of us has even thought about. But, you know, if you either are going to... People either have uh, no instincts or they do have instincts. And the people who have no instincts feel like anything is different. They just feel like, well, this is a cyclical downturn. It'll turn around. That's what always happens. We'll move on. Uh, the people who do have instincts can feel it in their bones. You know, I mean, you can just, you just know it's coming. And you just don't know exactly how it's going to go down. Um, 
But the United States has been cruising for a cruising for the better part of 150 years. And, uh, you know, we're getting our comeuppance now. And obviously the economy seems to be front and center uh, at, at, at what's going on. I mean, you know, the, the depression continues to worsen. Um, you know, the, the system is laughably telling us that we're in a recovery, uh, which is hilarious. You know, I mean, we were never even in a recession. This has been a depression since at least 08. And, um, you know, the, 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 if we do not uh, do something, what we're going to end up with is some kind of, you know, similar to The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Um, we're going to end up with a religious theocracy mixed with uh, corporate slavery. Uh, if we do act, uh, we can we can build something Great. I mean, there is no. The United States is the richest country that has ever existed in the history of humankind, and there is no reason why we all can't share the blessings and, and good things that are here, and also start to ramp back uh, the the rape and pillaging of the of the earth that we're so we have such a disproportionate responsibility and blame for. Yeah, and you bring a lot of good statistics into your book and pointing this out, this this disparity and how the uh, uh, the income gap is just growing and growing and uh, since about the 1970s. And, you know, right now, you know, like you say, they, they talk about this financial recovery and, recovery, and you see uh, Wall Street, uh, the stock market numbers are all going up, and you have like the Dow Jones, it was down to to 8,000 at one point. It's up to like 11,000 now. And that's all for those people, that investment class, things are going right in, in the right direction. But for the vast majority of Americans, working Americans, it's horrible. The, the unemployment rate is very high and uh, people are really struggling to get by, to pay bills, to, to have medical care. And it, it, it's the, um, to, to borrow a phrase from a former uh, presidential candidate john edwards is the two americas and uh so it and there's just this absurdity in the media then just this sort of pretend that this isn't how it is and that we're all together they can they can can talk up the economy which is just hilarious but you know what's even funny is even within the puffed up um, artificially high stock market, there's still kind of an interesting number there that people don't think much about. You know, the stock as you pointed out, the Dow is now hovering between 11 and 12,000. Well, you know, the Dow was hovering between 10 and 11,000 10, 10, 11 years ago. Now, let's say you're a member of the class. What that means is quite literally that your investments are 10% on average, more than they were 10 years ago. It's a 1% annual gain. Now, 1% is very impressive when you consider the fact that the real inflation rate is somewhere between 10 and here. So even those people are being burned, uh, you know, not nearly as bad as the rest of us. But uh, this economy is really not producing anything for anyone, uh, even on the upper tiers. They're just, they just have more to draw upon. They have more power to exploit. But the truth is, that's, that's kind of one of the reasons that you can see the overall you know, unsustainability of the system. It's not just that, we're, that the poor are getting squeezed, uh, which is, of course, happening uh, and, and it's just an outrageous rate, but it's the fact that, like, really, overall, it's not producing. And so these people at, many of these people at the top are not even benefiting from this situation? Is that what you're saying? I'm saying, I'm saying that they're... 
they are just not getting killed as badly as the rest of us. But they are very worried. I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've met people who either are running hedge funds or are running, uh, or, or who are running uh, small portfolios, uh, you know, in the six, seven, eight, six, seven, even eight figures. And they'll say, you know, that it's pretty crazy. They've gotten destroyed. I know about one guy who was running a fund that was worth about $50 million. And that fund is now today worth about 34 uh, after conservative, you know, after a few years of conservative investing. I mean, rich people are getting burned. The market is taking away their money, too. So the overall system is very unhealthy. You know, basically, it's like dog is very sick. And, you know, right now maybe the fleas are doing better than, than you know, other parasites. But the point is the dog is not doing well. It's going to die. And it's, uh, you know, we're just not all paying at the same rate. So even though many of these uh, big corporations, uh, they are... Um seem to be still quite invested in the system and have been putting more money into the political system than ever. Um, you're saying that they're not particularly happy with it either and they would like to see a, a big changes? That maybe yeah, well, I, I think what they would like to see is a, um, you know, ideally, they would like a system that, um, that was more stable. But, you know, many wealthy people are really would prefer something closer to a, uh, to, to a, a social contract, closer to something that FDR created. You know, they want to see capitalism from itself. They, they know that if you squeeze the goose that, that lays the golden egg, like, um, you know, the two-thirds, of the, the two-thirds of the economy being based on consumer spending, if consumers don't have money, either through their paychecks or through uh, credit cards, they're not going to buy anything. But the rich aren't stupid. They know that. The problem is that there's a split within the ruling classes for which to go, to go towards a reformist agenda or to go towards a uh, more voracious, classically capitalist uh, rape and pillage model. And in recent decades, and particularly since the 1970s, the rape and pillage model has been dominant. But there's still a split in the ruling classes, and I suspect that when the crisis comes to the fore, there's going to be an attempt to push people who discredit the uh, the rape and pillage types will be discredited, and you're going to see the, um, uh, uh, you know, a uh, revived um, argument on the part of reformist capitalists to try to to try to reform the system internally. What I'm arguing in the book, though, is that this is the final crisis of, of late capitalism, and that this, it, they will not prevail. This is not going to be, you know, they're not going to be able to achieve concessions in a timely or um, adequate manner that would be able to uh, put the working class and the middle classes back into the driver's seat and uh, and give them enough money to, uh, first of all, prevent them from revolting, and secondly. Um, you know, fuel the economy. So I think this is kind of, you know, but there is a split. I think the split is a footnote in the greater scheme of things, but it's still worth knowing about. Okay, and so you think uh, 
I'm sorry, the, the phone was breaking up there a little bit. Uh, you think the uh, which, which side is going to prevail in of these split within the? I think in the I think I think in the end the voracious uh, gluttons who just wanted to take as much out of the system on a quarterly profit basis as they can are going to are prevailing and will continue to prevail this time. You know, in the 1930s there was the split also between the FDR New Deal approach. And uh, the more, you know, the old trusts approach of just getting as much as they can. Um, and obviously the, the New Deal people, um, prevailed. But, and, and again, we saw a similar split in the 1960s when the, uh, the government was forced to make concessions. Uh, but that's just not going to, I don't think that split is going to go the same way in the future. Okay, and so then we are going to uh, get to quite a uh, crisis situation and things going to get uh, nasty and ugly. And you're saying, those of us who are not part of that crowd, those of us who have uh, a progressive, liberal left, or libertarian, classic libertarian leanings, and, uh, you know, believe in, in um, the, the best for, for all and all this kind of thing, that we need to uh, get prepared for this, and we need to be able to do some of the things we've already been doing, but be willing to also take another step. We need to put the fear of God, to use a phrase, into these elites that we need to uh, be armed. And, and can you go into that a little further? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, obviously, Second Amendment does give every American who's not a felon uh, the right to own a, a firearm. And I think it's, a, it's something that should not be left entirely to the right wing. Um, you know, if there's a if there's a current, obviously um, there could be civil war, and uh, in that situation, obviously uh, the left would be should be armed. That's the right, ideally, much better. Um, so I think that's that's, a, that's something that, both uh, from a personal individual safety uh, perspective, people should should strongly consider, and uh, from a political perspective, for the very same reasons, really, there's like the people at the Tea Party argue, you know, that the government can take uh, our freedoms. Well, they're right about that, and um, and that's not a, that's not the right-wing thought. That should be just common sense. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, of course, obviously, the Tea Party themselves. <laughs> weigh our freedoms, but that's a different discussion. Right. Well, you, you say in the book that the Tea Party and some of these really sort of crazy uh, right-wing militia groups that uh, we don't have to agree with what they're about, but we can potentially see these people as as allies and that there is a general uh, dislike for the establishment. Yeah, I it's important not to be too segmented. I mean, as it is, the left is ridiculously split apart along um, ideological lines. You know, I mean, socialists don't get along with anarchists, who don't get along with communists, who don't get along with leftist libertarians, who don't get along with liberal democrats, who don't get along with progressives, and so on and so on and so forth. And it's really... Um, uh, you know, but I, I would say that, like, when you're going up against a violent, hegemonic, incredibly and powerful state, uh, you need all the friends you can get. And if you can get your friends, and I say, if you get allies even on the far right, why not? Um, you don't have to, you don't have to govern with them. Uh, uh. Right. Uh, are, are you still there? Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, we're having a little trouble with the phone here. Are you hearing me okay, Ted? I am, yeah, no problem. Uh, okay. Um, let me try to bear with this for a little bit longer. If it gets uh, worse, we may have to... Uh, go to a little break and then try to call you back and get a better connection. But um, yeah, the uh, so you're saying you know you used the example of a lot of uh, previous uh, uh, revolutionary uh, movements and that uh, there were many groups working together who really pretty radically disagreed with one another. And but the point is, by working together, they were able to. Uh, if not achieve their goal to to wound the system for a future for future revolutionaries, and that once they were able to uh, take power, then were able to uh, sort out um, these differences, not always in a very pleasant manner, but the point you make is maintaining the system as is is, is not pleasant at all, and we 're all being sort of enslaved by it well yeah, I mean look I mean. What I'm arguing is that we need a revolution. Will that revolution work? Maybe not. Will it lead to something worse? Possibly. But, th- but consider the alternative, to live, in a compl- to live without hope of a better future. I mean, what could possibly be more depressing or grim than that? I mean, who wants to sit down with, like, a, a, a six-year-old child and tell her or him, you know, you will never live in a society that, that does better than we're doing now. And in fact, it's just going to get worse and worse. Congratulations, it's going to be your life until you're 60 or 70 or 80 or 90. I mean, it's absurd. I mean, it just seems obvious to me, and I think to most people, that the struggle to improve our our situation, to become a, to create a juster and fairer society, to try to do better by ourselves and by the creatures that we share this world, this this planet with, and to try to um, and to try to live uh, as as fairly to each other as possible. It seems to me like that's something that people ought to be working on all the time, and it should be our number one priority. Not something that we just sort of set to the side and give up on. I mean, otherwise, what kind of worthless layabouts are we? Right, and and uh, I, I guess you make the point that even though these types of situations can get very. Uh uh, dangerous, very bloody, and everything else. We have a situation now where we're engaging in these wars, where millions of people are getting killed, where we have a healthcare system that is just insane, where people die for lack of care, even though there's plenty of money for it. People commit suicide because they can't get care. Uh, all these types of things, right? And so, even though the situation you're advocating could uh, get uh, rather. Uh, uh, violent and and uh, frightening. What we have, is, if you think about it, in the long run, is much worse. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's interesting is that anti-American from those on the left that I would say is certainly allows for need when necessary. Um, among revolutionary forces. And, and people say, like, no, 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 we've got to be anti-violent no matter what. You know, what I'm saying, you know, we can't start being violent. And I ask those people, where are they living now? I mean, the current system, the reason that I oppose the current system is precisely because it is so violent. 
as you described. I mean, the, the current system is overtly murdering hundreds of thousands of people in, in, in pointless, unnecessary wars, and it is literally just as covertly murdering hundreds of thousands of homeless people and sick people by not giving them the care that they need. And, I mean, you know, people look at the Tucson shootings and they say, well, look at the violence that occurred there. And, and it, that's obvious. Yes, needless to say, it's, it's, the violence was horrible. But what about the violence that allowed Jared Lofner to go his entire life as his mental health obviously deteriorated without anyone feeling the need to step in, uh, no agency, no government official, saying, like, hey, let's get this guy a, a doctor. Let's get this guy a shrink. Um, you know, no, we just let people fall between the cracks. But he was a victim of violence, too. And, mm -hmm. um, and even now, lack of understanding of what he did or why he did it. Um, so the system is incredibly violent and, um, and, and ruthless and brutal. And, uh, and so, you know, we can I just don't think when you have a system that is that is uh, that clearly not only doesn't work but does more harm than good. I don't. I don't think you stay with it. You know, it's like if you have a terrible doctor, uh, you know, you, you, you fire that doctor and you, you go out looking for another one, and it might be hard to find a better one. I, I, I grant you, you got to fire that. You can't. You know, you can't endorse bad behavior, and that's that's the system we've got now. It's brutal. Yeah. Uh, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson, speaking today with Ted Rall, and we're discussing his book, The Anti-American Manifesto. So, uh, <laughs> uh, have uh, any of, like, uh, Glenn Beck or Bill O'Reilly or any of these guys caught wind of your book? I can just imagine their reaction and would probably be actually uh, kind of entertaining. <laughs> uh, have you had any uh, interaction with those guys? Well, uh, Glenn Beck requested a copy uh, from my publisher, so and it was delivered to him, and I know he got it. So he chose not to do anything about it, which I think, um, you know, you know, it's obviously kind of sad because I would have been greatly entertained to hear anything he had to say. <laughs> but on the other hand, um, it's also it's probably a reflection, in my view, of the together a pretty good, coherent. Uh, argument, and he's scared to give it publicity. I mean, if the book sucked, if it was poorly reasoned, if it was poorly written, he probably would have not hesitated to promote it uh, or to talk about cry it as an example of how, you know, look at this lunatic leftist. Um, but obviously the fact that the right has remained so silent about it uh, must mean that there's something there to be scared of, because they certainly are aware of it. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I always uh, love when they bring these things up and uh, just get uh, sort of insane. It's I mean, it's it's scary on the one hand, but it's entertaining because they they're so silly. Um, yeah, um, let me. I want to ask you this: Why is it that America has become so? totally dominated by corporations, whereas in Europe they've only been partially dominated. Is it because the corporations more thoroughly targeted America as the biggest prize, or is it because Europeans fight back? Well, I think there's been more of a... Um, well, first of all, the, the, the history of the, two, of the two places are so very different. But, you know, the thing about Europe is the soil is... is rich and fertilized with the blood of revolutions, you know, in every European nation. So the balance generally between the people and the ruling classes is tilted less severely towards the ruling classes over there than it is here. It's still, obviously, they're still the ruling classes, so they're still in charge. But 
they're a little bit more, you know, and the working classes and the proletariat generally just have more of a, um, uh, they have more ability to push back. You know, they can close, they can shut down France. Even though only 6% of French workers are members of labor unions, uh, when the union calls national strike, um, the country shuts down because people who are not members of unions also respect those picket lines and they go on sympathy strikes, including students who walk out of school. Um, so, you know, they just have that history working for them. So I think that the, that the... But over here, you know, labor has really been ruthlessly crushed. Um, the Even though there's, I think, 13% of workers belong to 11. It's either 11 or 14. I'd have to look up. Uh, Americans belong to unions. The unions have been co-opted. They're, um, they're wimpy. There's no... You know, there's just less, less consciousness over here. And obviously, you know, we haven't had a respectable revolution over here, really arguably ever, although we've come close a few times in the 60s and the, thir- in the 20s and the 30s. It's just certainly, you know, I think it's just the history. I think we're just tilted so far, so severely in, in their favor. I think that that makes the United States more vulnerable to a political uprising than a European country because the rate, you know, the pressure is on so much higher. Um, you know, if, if I were trying to preserve the system, I would, you know, I think liberalism does more to promote uh, capital, capitalist exploitation than conservatism uh, does. Uh, but so it's kind of hilarious. I mean, if I were you know, if I were a mercantile capitalist, I would definitely be a, a liberal Democrat. Um, you know, I don't know why they're not, like, wildly popular with the ruling classes, but, uh, you know, just there. Well, because you're saying on, on, you're like a liberal democratic system, it it allows uh, capitalism to 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 flourish because it doesn't try to go too far with it and it puts it in check, and yet people are still able to make uh, uh, huge profits. And when you go too far the other way with this ri- extreme right sort of agenda. Uh, you can make these huge, huge profits in the short run, but then the system will quickly collapse. Is that right? That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. And consider the last years. Right? Nearly 20 million Americans uh, were, uh, lost their homes to foreclosure. Now, hundreds of thousands of them, and this is kind of incredible, lost, were, were literally thrown out of homes that they, by banks, they had no relationship with whatsoever. In other words, not only they, they not even have a mortgage in the first place, they literally didn't even know the bank. They didn't have a checking account. They had nothing to do with them. And the banks threw them out using forged paperwork. Now, I don't know about you, but if, uh, if, if somebody throws me out of my home, because, uh, you know, through, within a matter of months using forged paperwork, and I'm out on the street with my family, I am pissed off. <laughs> I am now at war with the bank and in the war with the system that fails to stand because the system, the courts are not working for me, the um, politicians don't care about me. So I, at that point, I have nothing to lose. I hate them. I hate all of oh, you know, You've got 20 million people like that. Or, you know, let's just say like 19 million of them just suck it up and take it. Still, you know, do you really want to have, if you're running a million really angry people, uh, you know, that's exactly kind of, you know, it, it repeats itself across the board. Today, I was reading the New York Times about 
people who are um, veterans who were foreclosed upon while they were serving in Iraq or Afghanistan. Now, that's against the law. There's a law that literally says, you know, if you run into trouble because you've been deployed, the law, federal law, says that you just can't foreclose upon. They have to figure out some way to let you keep your home. You can't. But the banks didn't care. And people, you know, the wives of these men and service women who were uh, over serving overseas, you know, they, they told the banks about the law. They hired lawyer. It didn't help. Now, again, the enemies of these people. And it's happening every single day. So, yeah, I mean, you know, liberal Democrats would, you know, try to prevent that sort of thing and, and avoid pushing people too far, desperate people with nothing to lose. Yeah. But that perfect person with nothing to lose in the capitalist system is just a loser. But in a revolutionary situation, that person is a revolutionary. You right. Know, you can give yourself an instant promotion. Yeah, once you've got nothing to lose, uh, there's nothing to be afraid of. And, uh, yeah, and it's, uh, you know, you talk about a revolution and... and in uh, being at war with the the banks, it's like I always like to look at this, and I, I think you also say this in the book, is that they've declared war on us. It's just a matter of we need to start fighting back. And you know, you know, sometimes I'm surprised that that people aren't already you know, storming Wall Street with torches and pitchforks and surrounding the headquarters of Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, Chase, Citibank, all these guys. I mean, I mean, do you think? Uh, that it's, we're not too far off for things getting bad enough that the rage level will rise to that? I hope so. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's impossible to know, like, like I said in the book, it's impossible to know how this is going to go down um, and what's going to happen first. You know, I mean, certainly the banks deserve it. Uh, certainly the, the corporations, uh, these voracious corporations deserve it. Um, in our contempt and our hatred, and but you know it is it's obvious that when you have a perfect you know with ninety million Americans uh, structurally unemployed, in other words, people who just will never work um, because they just aren't jobs for them, and they run out of unemployment, they're out of options. There may be that some of them are on permanent disability, but the point is the system can't create jobs for them in a country with three hundred million people. That's a stomp staggeringly high. I mean, that's third world. And the thing is that the system has been doing a good job of covering it up. But, oh, you know, you just can't have that over time. I mean, people ultimately, um, you know, if you're going to have them not work, you have to give them money not to work. Um, you have to do something. You can't just, people need to eat. The hungrier they get, the, the more homeless they get, the more angry they get, just not going to lie down and take it. It's just, it's just history. I mean, it's common sense. You know, we're, we're animals. We have basic needs. They have to be filled, fulfilled. And, and if the system doesn't do it, um, especially if it's doing it for one class of people and not another, people will rebel. You know, it's kind of like those, um, uh, I'm kind of fascinated by game theory. And, you know, there's always these game, game theory experiments conducted by psychi psychologists with monkeys. And, and, like, one of them, for instance, is the, t it's the 10 banana experiment, where you give, they give 10 bananas to every monkey. And that's their ration, and every monkey is used to it. But then they take part of the monkeys, and they only start giving them fewer bananas. And what they find is that, that you know, the bananas will, 
if they give a, a, a monkey who's used to getting 10 and is watching other ones get 10, let they give him 7, he'll grumble, growl, but he'll eat them, and that's it. But if they give him 2, he'll reject them. He'll throw them away. He'd rather eat nothing, and he'll go crazy and become and start shaking his cage and be really violent and furious and never get over it. He won't accept any more. Um, and see, he'd rather have nothing. And in fact, they kind of found that with monkeys, the magic is five. You can get the, you can basically give half as many bananas to a monkey as is the sort of norm that he observes. But if you give him, and he'll complain, but he'll eat him. But if you go below five, you got a problem, and you have a very angry monkey. And I think we've had a lot of angry monkeys in the United States. Yeah, I've heard about other uh, observations of, of primates, baboons, and the, and such. And they talk about you know they have the, the the alpha male and the pack. And sometimes, if um, at a certain point, if an alpha male gets too out of control, some of the lesser males will band together and take him out. And have you seen these studies of that too? That kind of thing. Have you have you oh, yeah, seen? Yeah, not even politics really. It's about survival and um. Okay. Um. Are Are you still there, Ted? Yeah, man, man, the phone's breaking up, and we're we're. Uh, that, you know what? Um, let's go to a quick break here, and let me. I'm going to call you back. You can um, just uh, hang up the phone in just a sec, Ted, and I'm going to call you back and see if we can get a better connection. Okay? Sounds good. Welcome back to Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson. I'm sorry for the little interruption there. Having a little uh, bit of phone problems, which I hope are cleared up uh, for our guest, Ted Rawl. Ted, are you there? I am. Okay. That sounds. That sounds better so far. <laughs> so we've got okay. a little bit of time left here on the show. But, um, yes, and Ted is the author of the Anti-American Manifesto. That's what we're talking about. And uh, Ted is uh, recommending nothing less than uh, revolution, saying the uh, system is uh, unsalvageable and giving us a lot of uh, good data to make that case. Uh, okay, so, what, Ted, what about those people who say, no, it's still salvageable. There's still hope. Uh, you know, maybe you know if Obama can do this or that. And there's some people that want to do good things. Uh, what's your response to that? Well, I would ask them for their empirical evidence that the system is reformable. I mean, you know, if if the Obama election has proven anything, it's been that the system is impervious to reform. I think Barack Obama is about the best president that this system is going to allow to be elected. He's about as far left, and I kind of have to choke on, on this when I say it, but he's about as far left as this system is going to allow. He's about as smart that the system is about to, is going to allow, and he's about, he cares about as much about you and me as the system is going to allow. And if you're sitting there listening to me, to the, to me and saying, God, but Obama doesn't care about us, and he's not left enough, and, well, you're right, and that's, but that's about all we're going to get. I mean, let's look at the last two years. Obama and the Democrats uh, enjoyed a, the biggest congressional majority uh, since I believe 1918. Now, we both know that both, that the Democrats and the Republicans have been able to push through substantial 
uh, reach far-reaching legislation uh, with far fewer, far smaller majorities. Uh, whether it's George W. Bush with uh, you know a bare 50-50 Senate, or uh, Ronald Reagan uh, in the 80s, or for that matter, uh, you know LBJ with the War on Poverty. Um, in the Civil Rights Act. Uh, none of these presidents had the kind of commanding um, uh, mandate for change that Barack Obama had. And let's go back to January 2009. Uh, the, the, consider the state of the economy at that point. The, the, the banks were failing. People were going to take cash out of their banks because they were worried that they were going to lose their deposits. Um, it was five months into an economic collapse. 600,000 jobs a month were being lost. Uh, people were in a grievous panic. And if Obama had come in uh, at the inauguration and said, okay, listen, this is what we're going to do within the month, my first 100 days, this, that, this, that. We're going to nationalize this bank. We're going to help these people avoid foreclosure. We're going to declare a moratorium on foreclosure. We're going to immediately draw from Afghanistan and Iraq. We're going to close Guantanamo and so on. Um, he could have gotten most, if not all, of that through uh, with very little being watered down. But he didn't try to do anything like that. And as we know, the wars continue, the torture continues, Guantanamo is open, uh, we're, we're putting so-called terrorists who have been tortured on trial and, con and convicting them. Uh, yeah, it's shameful behavior. I mean, this is, if, if, if people think, like, well, Barack Obama wants to be a liberal, uh, I would say, well, where's the evidence of that? You know, he never was when he was a, um, when he was a, um, a, a U.S. senator. Um, you know, there's, he didn't run as one. I mean, I think people are projecting here. I think, I think it's almost racist. I think a lot of people uh, think, well, you know, he's a black guy. Um, black, black guys are mostly liberal, and, and they are. But he's just not, you know, and uh, people need to, like, just look at the result. I don't know what's in Barack Obama's heart. For that matter, I don't know what's in George W. Bush's heart. All I know is what they do. It's the only thing I can know. And, what, and, and the policies speak for themselves. The Democrats have not stood up for the working class or for the middle classes, and they've sold us out time and time again. Um, and I imagine you listeners know that, so I'm not going to go through the long list of, of you know, health care and, and so on uh, in the ways that they have, they have let us down. But point is that, like, you know, it's, it's wishful thinking to think that anything is going to change now, especially as we see the system actually becoming more reactionary and, cons and conservative uh, rather than the other way around. I mean, you know, we have the, uh, the media talking about President Obama's uh, State of the Union address as a great example of him tacking to the center. <laughs> like, the center? He's been a rightist all along. I mean, he's moving further to the right. It's kind of scary. I mean, think about Barry, Barry Goldwater in 1964 lost because he was considered a right-wing nut. These days, he'd be a radical leftist. Um, you know, this is, the country has, has really gone off the rails. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, we're just about out of time here, uh, Ted. And uh, if you could just maybe list a couple of things that you have on the book as far as, like, what you feel people should be doing now? I know you talked about people on the on the left uh, need to consider uh, arming themselves. But it, when for this collapse that is coming, what we need to do, what kind of networking we need to do, what types of actions we need to be taking? Well, the first thing you can do is talk to your friends and your colleagues and your neighbors and try to suss them out and figure out where they are uh, politically. You know, if, if it's it's a dangerous time. I mean, it's kind of uh, the I draw, among others, in the Anti-American Manifesto is to uh, the occupation of, of 
of France at the you know during World War Two, you know the right now the left is in a, like the resistance was in, in 1940. The left is completely kind of non-existent and confused. There are millions of Americans who feel the same way as as we do, but they are just they don't know who to turn to because there's no leadership, there's no movement. There's no organization. Well, those organizations are only going to start to coalesce, uh, not by you waiting for someone else to create it and join it as a group on Facebook, but by you and your ally, your political allies who you feel out and figure out who you can trust, forming the cells that will eventually form those future resistance groups. That's going to be you. It's up to you people just to think about what you need to do and to, and to reach out to people who are like-minded. That's the first major step. And then, of course, obviously, mentally, you really, and I, I, I don't think this is just all about mental things at all, and, but mentally you do have to stop thinking about politics as something that happens between Democrats and, and Republicans. Uh, that's not politics at all. That's just a puppet regime for the corporate ruling class. That's a distraction. Politics is something that happens at Starbucks over, over coffee. It's something that happens uh, over the water cooler at work. It's something that happens uh, when you talk to the guy next to you at the unemployment office or on jury duty. Uh, politics is something that we all need to do all the time, as they do in other countries. And, and the D's and the R's and voting and all that stuff, that's just a waste of your time. You, get, you have to start thinking about politics as something that you do personally. All right, Ted Rawl, uh, do you, is there anything, any information you want to give out to us, websites or, or anything else uh, related sure. to your work? Um, sure, feel free to uh, check out my website. There's uh, cartoons and columns and uh, animated editorial cartoons, and obviously you can buy the book and other books there. It's, it's just Rawl.com, R-A-L-L.com. R-A-L-L dot com. And, and the, the cartoons are really funny. I'm telling all you guys that they're, they're, they're really funny. They'll make you laugh and, and make you think and, and sort of uh, piss you off as well in, in a good way, make you want to uh, <laughs> get active. The book, again, is the Anti-American Manifesto. Ted Rawl, thanks so much for spending the time with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay, take care. All right, yes, Ted Rawl, The Anti-American Manifesto, and that's uh, Rawl.com, R-A-L-L. So stay tuned. We've got more excellent programming coming up here on KUCI in Irvine. Matt Kaplan will be ready to go in just a few minutes with um, his double feature, always on uh, Thursday early evening. Uh, that is Counterspin and Planetary Radio. And I'll remind you once more, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. So this uh, concludes... This week's edition of Out the Rabbit Hole, I'm Robert Larson, and I will be talking to you uh, next week here on KUCI in Irvine.